Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. We sang one of my favorite lines this morning in the first song, Come Thou Fount. Oh, that day when free from sinning. Oh, that day when free from sinning. There is a day coming in the future where you will no longer do the things that you hate. And you will no longer be wounded or injured or harmed by other people doing the things that they ought not to do. Amen? The best is yet to come, church family. Do you believe that? Like sometimes we get stuck in the weeds and it's hard to believe that, but every now and then we just need to peer up and be reminded that the best is yet to come. As Revelation 21 says that there is a day coming where there will be no more tears or crying or suffering or pain anymore. For behold, I have made all things anew, says God. And so the best is yet to come. Oh, that day when free from sin is coming. I want you to take just 30 seconds, say hello to somebody next to you, look them in the eye, say good morning, and then say the best is yet to come. Some of you aren't believing it right now. Some of you are, but let's say what is true to one another. The best is yet to come. Amen. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's rein it in. You can carry that on later on. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our text for today, which is John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. John 13, 31 through 35. It's on page 900 in the Pew Bible. When he had gone out, and that's Judas, who we learned about last week, Jesus had just served him communion. And then Judas leaves to go and betray Jesus. And here's what Jesus says to the remaining disciples. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Lord Jesus, we thank you for speaking, that you were God in flesh. You came to give us an example, a model of what God is like. As you say here in this text, just as I have loved you. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning that we would be recipients of your love. And then you say, just as I have loved you, therefore you ought to love one another. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be responsive to your love this morning as well. As we receive it from you, I pray that we would give it to others. Meet us where we're at. This morning, Lord Jesus, and, your, and have your way in us for your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In his 2016 Tony Acceptance Award, Lynn manuel Miranda, the author of the truly awe-inspiring and amazing musical Hamilton, started a movement with his speech. In his speech, he said this, this show... The, the show Hamilton, this show is proof that history remembers. We live through times when hate and fear seem stronger. We rise and fall and light from dying embers. Remembrances that hope and love last longer. 
And love is love is love is love is love is love is love. And the crowd goes wild in approval and affirmation of that statement. Love is love is love is love is love. Now, Lin-Manuel Miranda didn't start that phrase. That phrase already existed. But this movement started as a result of that speech. And it's now this creed of our culture. Love is love. You've seen the signs. You've seen the shirts. You've heard the creed. Now, I'm not here to throw stones at Lin-Manuel Miranda. I like Hamilton a lot. I've had the privilege of seeing it, and I think it's amazing. I have a wife who loves musicals, and she puts up with my addiction of baseball, so every now and then I have to go and watch a musical with her, and and I've actually learned to actually enjoy it. And so I'm not here to throw stones at Lin-Manuel Miranda and what he said in this speech. I think it was inspiring. I think it was well-intentioned, and I think he's right. Love is 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 love. He said it eight times. And yet, what is love? To define a word with that word doesn't give us a whole lot of substance. It doesn't give us a whole lot to go on. So this cultural creed of ours, love is love, it's absolutely right, but it leaves us wondering, well, what is love? How many of you don't know what walk in the park is? Put your hand up nice and high. You all know what walk in the park is? One. Okay, we have one. So if I was to tell you, meet me at walk in the park, you would be like, which park? We're going to go for a walk in a park. I get that, right? See, if you don't know what walk in the park is, I can't just tell you, well, it's walk in the park. It still leaves you wondering, what is walk in the park? Walk in the park, I I would have to tell you, is the best restaurant in Minnesota. It's one mile from here down Minnetonka Boulevard. It has fresh Asian bistro, and you're going to have to take my word for it because it's closed on Sundays, and so go there tomorrow and test it out and see for yourself. Walk in the park, it's a fresh Asian bistro. You need some description. You need something to help you understand. One more example. If I was to tell somebody, or if somebody was to not know who the Vikings are, you would have to, you can just say, well, they're the Vikings, right? You'd have to say, well, they're a football team in Minnesota and they will always disappoint you and let you down, right? <laughs> then you get it. You start to understand who the Vikings are. You start to understand what walk in the park is. In order to get love, to understand what love is, we have to do some defining of love. And so this morning, as we read Jesus holding up this incredible ethic of love, we need, a little, we need to do a little bit of defining what love is. And so we're going to define love today and then look at how Jesus models it for us. Love primarily is action as Jesus talks about it. Here in this text, verse 34, and I'm going to skip over verse 31 and 30 to 33 this morning. We're going to get back into that next Sunday as we go into the next text, into John chapter 14. It kind of ties to that passage. And so in John 13, Jesus has been showing us love by washing the disciples' feet. He's been talking about love. He has said, as I do, you also ought to do. And now verse 34 and 35, we're just going to land the plane on this kind of three-week look at what is a community of love? How did Jesus build it? And the word that Jesus uses here for love is agape. In this time, in the Greek culture, there were multiple words for love. There was storge, which means affection, There is phileo, which means brother, sister, familial love. And then there was eros, which is romantic or sexual love. Agape is on a whole different plane. Agape incorporates some of the other types of love, like like storge's affection. Agape incorporates affection. 
It's having affection towards another person. Agape incorporates phileia, brotherly, sisterly, familial love. But agape, unlike the other forms of love, it, it means action. It means to do. It's like, a, it's like a parent for a child, this unconditional love that you feel internally. Even in the midst of their disobedience, like you, you might feel anger, frustration, but a, but a good parent has this connection to their child that they love them in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their journey, this unconditional love. And it's a love that, that, that acts, right? New parents, we have some new parents here. Your kids demand so much of you, right? And you do it, you give, you have literally put your life on pause. You have no more life. And it's gonna stay that way. I've talked to older parents than me, it's gonna stay that way forever, right? Your love is now in action. Spouses, when you get married, all of a sudden you start to realize how self-centered, how self-seeking you are. I mean, those of you who aren't married without kids, like if you have a roommate, if you have coworkers, if you have people that are up in your business, you realize love is hard. It requires a ton of action. It's not sentimental. It's not just a feeling. It does involve affection. It does involve feeling, but it's more than feeling. It's more than sentiment. It is sacrifice. It is laying your preferences, your rights, your life down for another. In, uh, in his book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro quotes another book, and he plays out the story about this, this lady feeling drawn to go to this community to help serve some poor and down and out people, but she's wrestling with it, and she's like, I might get there, and, and I know that they're not going to appreciate me the way that I ought to be appreciated, and I'm not sure if I'm ready to handle that. Like, if I'm going to give up everything and go and serve people who aren't going to appreciate it, I don't know if I can handle that. And, and this monk responds to her. He says, love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Amen? If you've ever been in a relationship of love, love in practice is a harsh and dreadful reality compared to love in dreams. Because love in our dreams, it's us getting what we want. And it's that other person responding to us in the way that we want them to respond to us. Because that feels great, doesn't it? How many of your conflicts with other people? It's because they won't respond to me the way that I want them to respond to me. They won't give me the thing that I desire. They won't meet my needs. And so Jesus, when he uses his word agape, he's saying that's not what true love is. Love is you laying your life down for others. Love is you acting towards others the way that God has acted towards you. That's what love is. Let's continue on. Love is also the most effective and biblical form of evangelism. Look at verse 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you agape one another, that you love one another. It implies relationship. It implies community. We've talked about that the last two weeks. You can't love one another if there are no one another's. You can't isolate and love. You have to be in community and relationship in order to love. It says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Verse 35 is key for this point here. It says, by this, by your love, by your agape, by your action towards others, by your giving towards others, all people will know that you are my disciples, my apprentices, my followers, if 
you have love for one another. It's not that you're able to nail the four spiritual laws in like, or that, you know, like there's all these different forms and methods of evangelism. Some of you have been to like classes and seminars where you're taught methods of evangelism and those aren't bad and wrong, but rarely do they start out with, here's your number one thing, go love others, especially your Christian brothers and sisters. That's Jesus' call to us. Your evangelistic efforts are worthless if you don't have genuine, abiding, agape love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost. And then Jesus, throughout the Gospels, will also teach us this ethic of loving our enemies. That is the most effective and biblical form of evangelism. So some of you, you're like, I don't like sharing my faith. I don't want to do street evangelism or any form of evangelism. Like, I don't want to go knock on doors and ask people questions or start conversation with random strangers. Some of you love that. Some of you hate that. Some people have the gift of evangelism. Some people don't have the gift of evangelism. There's a spiritual gift of evangelism. However, we're all called to evangelize. And our first and primary way that we evangelize the world, that is, that we make Jesus known, is that we love Others, right? That's what Jesus himself is saying. By this, by your love. In the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of fracturing in the American church. A lot of name-calling. A lot of separation. A lot of judgment. A lot of assumption. A lot of speculation. And so, church family, let's be reminded of what Jesus says here. By your agape towards other believers, other Christians, other disciples, people will know that you're my follower. Not by your eloquent words, not by your great methods, not, it's just by your love. That's first and foremost, it's primary. Now, friends, you're not going to hear me say anything this morning that you probably haven't already heard. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you're like, yeah. <laughs> And we're people who always want more and new information. And yet, do we struggle to love one another? And and so part of our maturity, part of our growth is actually applying the things that we know, which is the next point here, is that love is the best measure of spiritual maturity. Thank you, John Mark Comer, for this one. He gave a sermon at his own church a couple years ago where this was one of his points, and I heard it. I'm like, amen, that's it. I'm ripping that off and using it in my own church. Love is the best measure of spiritual maturity. It's not how consistent you are with your devotions. It's not how well you practice your spiritual disciplines. It's not how much money you give. It's not how early you wake up in the morning. It's not all of these things that we sometimes tend to measure spiritual maturity by. And we live in this information culture and we often will elevate people who know more cognitively about the Bible and assume that there's a level of spiritual maturity because they have more scripture memorized, they can quote more verses, they give more money, they spend more time at church, they do all this, they do all this, and love is action, right? So there is some doing. But love is the best measure of our spiritual maturity, Not all of the things that we do for God. We do out of love. We have to be recipients of love. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 34. Just as I have loved you. So our posture, if, if we care about spiritual maturity and growth at all, step number one 
We talk about this all the time at Park Community Church. Open up your hands and receive God's love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we take communion every week to remind us that it's not about our ability to crush loving others that we are then accepted. It's God's love for us in which we are accepted. And then it's his love for us. It's it's in our ability to receive his love that we're then able to return and give his love. You can't give out of an empty cup. And Jesus says, just as I have loved you, love one another's. And the mark of maturing spirituality, a mature disciple or a maturing disciple is their ability to love, not their ability to crush their spiritual disciplines, not their ability to do everything for everyone else. And again, love is action. But I want to pause here for a moment and go to 1 Corinthians 13. And as we go to 1 Corinthians 13, it's on page 959. Just to kind of land the plane on this, love is the best measure of spiritual maturity. It's, it's not greater intellect. That's not a mark of spiritual maturity. How much you cognitively know the Bible. Love is not greater spiritual disciplines. I already said that one. And love is also not greater use of your spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians is going to show us all of this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm just going to read through it and let this minister to your heart and and let the Bible prove the last two points that I just made. That love is the most effective and biblical form of evangelism and that it's the best measure of spiritual maturity. The Apostle Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Again, love is action. And I read that, I'm like, wait, and he's using the word agape here. I'm like, isn't that action to give everything away? And, and, and Paul seems to be saying what Jesus also said, that there is a type of action that is closed off to heart transformation. It's like the Pharisees. They gave things away. They tied their money. They did their devotions. They lived a morally good and righteous life. They had a ton of self-righteousness and judgment. And yet they are usually the object of Jesus' frustration. Paul goes on. Here's what love is. Like if we just, if the title of the sermon is love is, just listen to this. Paul answers it for us. And he gets this by peering into the life and the ministry and the way of Jesus. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And it's interesting that oftentimes we think maturity is head knowledge, right? Well, you're just thinking like an immature Christian. And and Paul here is actually saying, when, when I was young in the faith, 
it, it, for Paul, it's when he was legalistic. It's when he cognitively knew God's law, but he didn't relationally apply it in love. When I, when I was a child, I thought and reasoned like a child. When I became a man, that's actually when I grew up in my relationship with God, when I became spiritually mature, I gave up the way that I used to think, which, which was a religious and legalistic way of thinking, and I took on love. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, verse 12, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Isn't that beautiful? Our relationship with God is to know him deeply and intimately, not cognitively, but intimately. And then the return of our relationship with him is that we are fully known by God deeply and intimately every detail about your life, everything you feel shame about, everything you feel joy about, everything that you question and wonder and doubt, God knows it and he's there with you, knowing you fully. To be loved is to be fully seen, fully known, and then yet have someone act and move towards you in agape love. That's what God does for us. Verse 13, so now faith and hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the best measure of spiritual maturity. And then lastly, love is the way and the command of Jesus. Flip back to John 13. Jesus says in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. And the Greek word here for commandment means a command. Like, sometimes we bristle at the word command or rule or law. Like, I don't want to be told what to do. At least I do. I don't know. Some of you might love commands and rules and laws being placed upon you. I, I recoil. But yet, Jesus is saying here, this is a command. This is the rule. This is the law that I am giving you. And so it's important to keep in mind with Jesus that he models the way for us, right? And this is like younger terminology, younger generations of Christian love to think about Jesus' ways and not so much his commands, right? And I love that too. Because again, I don't like commands and laws placed upon me. But in Jesus, we see both. Here's a, here's a way. I'm going to show you the way of love. John 13, he has just washed the disciples' feet. He said, as I do, you should do also. This is the way. In John 14, we're going to see this next week. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's showing us the way to live. He's showing us the way to salvation, not just for then and there, but for here and now. Eternal life starts here and now. There's a kingdom of God reality for you and I to live into. And we understand that by looking at the way of Jesus. But Jesus has also given us a command. Here, here's the standard. Here's what I expect of my community. If you're going to join my community of agape love, you've got to be a person of agape love. You've got to receive my love, and you've got to give my love to others. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. This is the way and the command of Jesus. Look at Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40 with me, as we think about the way and the command of Jesus. Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And if you're not that familiar with the Bible, the Pharisees and Sadducees are the religious institution, the religious leaders, and they don't like Jesus because Jesus keeps breaking their categories, like with teaching like this, right? That spiritual maturity is how you love, not how much you know. And so, so they, they, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. He gave some teaching which stumped them. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, smart guy, watch out for smart guys and gals. They think often, they think they're smarter than Jesus. So they're trying to trap Jesus and figure Jesus out and philosophize away what Jesus has to say or theologize away what Jesus has to say. And like, Jesus is pretty simple. My way is love and my command is love. Well, let's see, if that's so hard. Is there a way that we can do a workaround? Right? A religious workaround. Because it's easier for me to just follow the law than it is to give myself away to somebody that I don't even like. And so they're trying to catch him. This lawyer asks him a question to test him. That's the heart of this question. It's not an honest question. It's not a good faith question. It's not a real discussion. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Pharisees and Sadducees, they uphold the Old Testament law. 613 commands from God. And they built commands around the commands so that they wouldn't break the commands. He, he, he's, he's trying to trap Jesus, but he's also well-intentioned in the sense that he thinks life comes from the law. And so he wants to uphold the law. He thinks that Jesus is here to break the law and that Jesus came outside the law, and he thinks the law is what gives life, and so he's, he's confused, and he's trying to catch Jesus and prove that Jesus is a false teacher because Jesus isn't upholding the Old Testament law. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, here's Jesus' response, you shall love agape, act, give. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all of the law and the prophets. That's it. Love God with everything that you have. Agape God. Act towards God. Act with God. And love neighbor. Also as self. Like some of us, you actually need to start understanding that God loves you. You, you can actually love self some of us in this room are struggling with self-hatred, self-doubt. Like, we just... And you might need to just be reminded that God loves you. He sees you. He knows you. He delights in you. And if the creator of the universe sees you and knows you and delights in you, you might be worth being seen and being known and being delighted in. And you might just want to stop beating yourself up and wallowing in your sin, and thinking you're unworthy of love, because the Bible actually teaches us that God sees worth and value in us, which is why he loves us, and why he acted agape towards us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Human beings created in the image and likeness of God are worthy of his love. That's why he came to redeem us and to show us his love in action. This is the way and the command of Jesus. Everything in the scriptures can be summarized. And that's what Jesus is saying. All of the Old Testament law, they can be summarized in loving God 
and loving others. Loving God and loving others. So last point here this morning before we transition to communion is just to be reminded how Jesus loved his disciples. Flip back to John 13. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. In all of those 613 laws, all of that, that was actually all to show you that you're incapable of being perfect. And even the ethic of the Old Testament law is to love God and love others. So that's the ethic. That's the heart of it. It's to try and help you understand in that particular cultural context what it looks like to love God and to love neighbor. And he's saying the whole point of it, and if you think about the Ten Commandments, right? You shall love the Lord your God. Have no other gods before him, right? Love God. And then the other commandments are outward focused, how you love others, to not covet, to not lie, to not commit adultery, to not steal. Love God, love others. That's, that's the point of the Ten Commandments. It's not moralism. It's not religion. It's to give us an understanding of what it actually looks like to put into practice loving God and loving others. Jesus summarizes, love God, love others. John 13, 34, a new commandment. It's all summarized that I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So we've talked about this the last two weeks, but I want to spend just a couple minutes being reminded of how Jesus has loved his disciples 2,000 years ago in practice, in reality. And then by extension, how Jesus loves us 2,000 years later through community, through the church that he builds. Jesus loved his disciples, number one, by spending time with them. Throughout the Gospels, and even here in John 13, we talked about this two weeks ago, this is Jesus just eating a meal with his disciples, spending time with them. Before his hour of death, how does Jesus spend his time? Not learning a new evangelistic method, not preaching to the masses, not having an altar call, but sharing a meal, a long, drawn-out meal with his friends. Jesus loved his disciples by spending significant time with them. Discipleship is inefficient. Relationships are inefficient. Sometimes the American church goes wrong because we try to programmatize everything and make everything streamlined, and, right? And discipleship, like if, if discipleship, if, if being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and being with other people is the way that we change, if spending time with people is how Jesus loved them, and then we're to do likewise, it's extremely inefficient, those of you who care about like multiplying and maximizing and efficiency, like discipleship is the worst. It means you just eat with people and you hear their stories for the hundredth time and you share your story for the hundredth time and they're annoyed with you. And, but that's life with people. Jesus spent time with his disciples. Significant amount of inefficient time. And 2,000 years later, that's still producing fruit. Amen? So it might not be efficient, but it's effective. Church family, if you want to love like Jesus, spend a significant amount of inefficient time with the people that God has put in your life and sphere of influence and sphere of relationship. See what God does. Jesus also loved his disciples by speaking truth to them. Jesus didn't hold back. Like agape love doesn't mean full acceptance and affirmation of wherever anyone is at. Agape love, Jesus' type of love, is to speak the truth. It's to call out sin. It's to encourage towards righteousness. It's not to stay silent 
and to be absent-minded to the truth or to be accommodating of everyone's personal choices, eh, actually, there might be some accommodation. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. All all that I want you to hear on this point here is that Jesus did love his disciples by speaking truth. That's what the Gospels are. He's teaching them. He's preaching to them. He's speaking to them the truth about who God is and who we are. But I do want you to notice as you read the Gospels, as Jesus doesn't shy away from teaching truth, his relationships with his friends, they weren't void of hard and controversial topics. He didn't just keep the peace by not going there. He would engage things like politics and sexuality and racism and all. He would engage that stuff. But notice, as you read the Gospels, that Jesus often took these hard and controversial topics and he turned it inward on each individual person. It wasn't like, yeah, let's talk about those people out there and we're self-righteous in here. He always turned it, whether it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or even his own disciples, he always turned it inward on them. So you want to talk about truth about sexuality? And gender, hot topic, right? All right, let's talk about your sexuality. You want to talk about politics and power? All right, let's talk about your idols of power, or maybe it's comfort. You want to talk about racism? Okay, what are you biased towards? Why don't you love that person, or why do you make these assumptions about that group of people? That's how Jesus spoke truth. And I think sometimes in the church and Christian circles, we can like start to look external and be like, yeah, them, they don't have the truth. And, and what Jesus will do is say, yeah, this is all true. All these cultural moments, all these cultural hot topics, they're true, they're, they're, they're true experiences. And, and these cultural moments and these cultural missteps and idols need truth spoken into them. But what are yours? That's, that's how Jesus speaks truth. And then in speaking truth, he also has grace for his disciples. He loved his disciples by having grace for them. This is fascinating reality and tension that Jesus holds together, right? Where he both speaks truth, but he has grace. Means he has undeserved favor for his disciples when they don't measure up, when they can't conform, when they miss the mark, which is the definition of sin. Jesus persevered through a lot. If you remember in John chapter 13, the beginning, we looked at this two weeks ago. Look at verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He persevered in relationship with his disciples, and persevering in relationship takes a ton of grace. You all know that, right? If you're going to persevere with another person in a relationship, you need to give them grace. They're going to persevere with you in a relationship. You're going to need their grace. These are the tensions that Jesus holds together, speaking truth in love. Oh, I, I want to say this. Grace doesn't mean compromising the truth. It means having compassion for people, including yourself, on the journey towards increasing conformity to the truth. Like, truth people, sometimes when they hear the word grace, they're, like, worried that truth is going to get discarded and washed over, because sometimes it does. In the name of grace, sometimes we fail to speak the truth and hold up the truth. But sometimes, in the, so, so that happens, but sometimes in the name of truth, we forget to extend and show grace. Grace isn't void of truth. It's not compromising, at least Jesus' way of grace and truth. It's not compromising truth. 
It's merely this ability to have compassion for the journey as people learn to discover truth and learn to conform their life to truth. And so, church family, keep this in mind. You need people's grace as you, yourself, over the years are more and more conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus as your cognitive understanding of truth and your ability to accept truth and surrender your own agenda to God's. It takes time. That's true for everyone else in our lives and churches as well. And so we need to be careful and slow, I think, to make certain statements about certain political things or, or, or like, here's where we stand, here's the truth of God's word. It's like, absolutely, let's not shy away from the truth. But how do we also extend compassion for people on their journey towards conforming to a truth that's unnatural to our flesh? That's, that's the game. Look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Jesus has already, well, John showed us how Jesus is this grace and truth. I preached through this months ago, but I think it's worth looking at again on this point. John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. He wasn't some grace, some truth. He was grace and truth. He, he spoke truth and he had grace full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Again, this this moral standard that Jesus already said, it's all summarized in loving God, loving others. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Again, that word known. God is knowable in the person of Jesus, and God knows you, and he has favor towards you in and through the person of Jesus. And then the last way that we see Jesus laying down his life for his friends, loving his disciples, is by laying down his life for his friends. Flip back to John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, just as I have agaped you, as I have acted towards you. This is the ultimate show of love that Jesus acts towards us. Look at John 15, verses 12 through 17. This is the same conversation, but a little bit later. So John 13 bleeds into John 14, 15, 16, and 17, which were just, which were just, I was going to say, what's the right word? lingering on. I was going to say festering in over the next couple months, but I don't know. Lingering. We're going to linger on John 14, 15, 16, and 17 over the next couple weeks here. We're, we're lingering on this long conversation that Jesus has, his last night, this intimate conversation with the disciples, and to this point of love, he says, John 15, 12 through 17, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one other than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Church family, just receive this as I read it. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, 
he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us and for them. And he calls us friends and he welcomes us into this intimate relationship. And then you might be saying, well, how do I become a friend of Jesus? Well, do what he commands. That's, that's fruit, that's evidence that you are his friend, that you're obeying his commands. But first you have to receive. I want to close out this morning as we go to communion with Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. So flip over there. Let's see how we become friends with Jesus. By receiving his love. Romans 5, 6 through 11, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He makes us friends. He dies in our place. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Don't get hung up on the word wrath. It means steady opposition to the things that break relationship with God and others. Any good person will have steady opposition towards that which brings destruction. That's what wrath means. God has steady opposition. He's opposed to what brings destruction upon his prized possession, people created in his image and likeness. Verse 10. For if while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen? And so church family, what we do every week when we gather at Park Community Church is to open up the table for those of you who want to receive the love of God through the reminder that is communion. The bread representing his body given for you, which we just read about. And the blood representing, the, the cup representing his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins so that you could be reconciled to God in right relationship with God and right relationship with others and self. And so come to the table this morning receiving God's love being reminded as you come to this table that he spent a significant amount of time with his friends. He spoke the truth. He had grace and he laid down his life for them and he does the same for each one of us. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are, what you do. Lord, I pray now, even though this is a... a cheap imitation of the meal that you had with your disciples. It's rushed. The food isn't nearly as abundant, nor is the drink. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that this would be a reminder, a symbolism of you spending a significant amount of inefficient time with your disciples, of you speaking truth to your disciples, having grace for your disciples, and ultimately laying down your life for them and for us. And so we come to the table this morning, Lord Jesus, hungry to receive you for who you are and to receive all that you have for us. In your name we pray, amen.